So the Lone Ranger and Tonto are encircled <laughs> by wild Indians. Tonto, of course, is the Lone Ranger's faithful Indian companion who goes everywhere with him and helps him. And this time, they're in real trouble. They're surrounded and the Indians are shooting arrows at him. The Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, what shall we do? And Tonto says, what do you mean, we, white man? <laughs> When I began to think about what I was going to say about influence, it came to me to wonder how many words of prose I've read in my life and how many of verse. Even leaving out junk prose, newspapers, dumb magazines, bills, advertisement on the television and billboards, and counting just the serious volumes of fiction, philosophy, history, science, anthropology, etc. Surely the mass of prose I've consumed has to outweigh even the thousands of hours I've spent in reading and studying poetry. Although perhaps if the calculation were to include all the poems I've read twice, 20, 200 times, the discrepancy wouldn't be as great. But even if that inflow of verse has been comparatively meager, I can still say with certainty that I've been more affected. Influence is precisely the word by poetry. I'll go further and propose that my mind, and more crucial, my imagination, has been shaped by, I might even claim, created by poetry. Perhaps this is why I read poetry much differently from the way I read prose, even the greatest prose. The fact is, I never read a poem I don't yet know without believing that it or something in it will change me. I suppose the inevitable question is, change what? My poetical skill, my faculty or craft, my vision of what poetry can do. Yes, of course, I always hope all that, but the larger and more interesting hope or expectation is that what will be changed is my imaginative capacity and my imagination itself. An even more difficult question now, what exactly do I mean when I speak of imagination? What do any of us mean? Is an imagination an offshoot of thought, a condition of thought, something the mind occasionally enacts, tries to do, does? A means or method mind has of accomplishing certain tasks, solving problems, or creating them? Is imagination, in other words, a condition or a tool or neither? It's impossible in speculating about imagination not to think of Coleridge's wonderful definition, a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. There's more, of course, about primary, secondary imagination and fancy, and all of Coleridge's brilliant speculation is grand, inimitable, but I have to admit it really doesn't help me in describing to myself this phenomenon or concept which somehow infuses and determines all my aesthetic receptions and acts, and perhaps importantly, all my moral standards and decisions as well. As a poet, creating objects that are assumed to be products of what we call imagination, I presume I implement it or am involved in it or something. And yet, when I'm scrolling down the first unexpected notes for a poem or groping towards a poem by revising, I never would dare say to myself, right now my imagination is working, and try to determine anything about it. I'm too preoccupied to know or care. And also, I can be sure that if I stop to think about imagination, the poem will stop, will no longer, as a poet friend of mine put it, be willing.
This is surely what Coleridge was telling us in his note to Kubla Khan. If I can't say then what imagination is in practice, then I have to ask myself, what the hell is it at all? And I'm certain that for a poet and artist, perhaps in different ways for everyone, imagination, this fugitive function or fact or heaven for fiction, is everything, all. It is also the most mysterious and profound portion of mind to which we have access. I'd like here to hypothesize a somewhat different definition for the imagination. Imagination, I'll say, is what creates conditions, shapes, anneals, or makes more malleable and sensitive the voice, or rather the voices, of the mind, of consciousness and conscience. Joyce, in a story in Dubliners, casually has a character refer to one of my consciences being born. And surely we do have more than one conscience, and just as crucially, we have more than one voice in our consciousness. And mightn't Freud's cunning geology of mind be considered as actually having less to do with instinct and its repressions than with the various voices of mind, some quite insistent and loud, some silent, some existing as overtones or undertones, not really heard but nevertheless determining the quality of our minds and the richness of our experiencing of ourselves. Without digressing any further, I'll present my position on the larger implications of influence by saying that poetry, because it of all the verbal arts most intensely involves the voice of the poet and most forcefully invades and inhabits the voice of the mind of the reader, is the most effective language implement we have for enlarging, refining, making more rigorous the imaginative functions of mind, both aesthetic and moral. The finally rather crude term influence is how this invading, inhabiting, and enlarging procedure occurs, both for poets and for anyone who loves poetry and knows poetry, knows most essentially that poetry must be read aloud by the voice of the mind because otherwise it isn't being read at all. The way poetry manifests its own voice is through music, that special and rather magical quality which distinguishes it from any other genre of language. Some writers, rather than referring to the music of poems, will actually use the term voice. But I think music is the better term because it includes both the complexities of the verbal acts, acts of the speaker in the poem and the sensibilities of the reader receiving the poem. But it's easy to understand the, the use of voice because, the, because it is the voice of the mind and of the poem mind which seems most affected by and mysteriously changed, influenced by the complex enactments of the poem. I'll confess now, though perhaps the better term might be boast, that I spent my adult life on a quest for influences, for poet teachers to whom I can submit, and even for individual poems that might offer glimmers of new ways of experiencing myself as a poet and as a person. There have been very few periods in my writing career when I haven't been deeply involved with what I can only call a master, and there haven't been many days when I haven't sought out poems to thrill me into new ways of composition and new ways of being. Another less benign admission, 
The truth is that without quite having been conscious of it until I was writing this, I judge poems by how I think they might reach into me and possibly affect my imagination. This is what makes me decide finally whether a poem is great, a good, or neither. And it's what makes me, at least in my study, a terrifically harsh, intolerant critic of poems and poets. Fortunately, however, just as I have several consciences, I also have, I believe all artists probably must, several sets of aesthetic standards. Otherwise, I'd be in a state of revulsion much of the time. One evolves a tolerance of poems just as one acquires patience in the face of much of what is found wanting in the world. In my career as a lifelong apprentice, I've learned there are many complex ways in which poems can be influences. Some poems hold at your own voice, insist, demand, also almost overwhelm, write like me, be me, the music of a great poem can proclaim. On the other hand, poems can insinuate themselves with such subtlety into your own voice that you don't really know what's happened or how. You just know that something has been changed, been liberated, and that there are possibilities for your work you hadn't known before. In my own case, Robert Lowell was an example of the first, Elizabeth Bishop of the second. Then there are poems and poets who influ whose influence isn't so much on one's poetic voice, but whose power somehow directly affects the imagination. One might say the imagination which contains and is beyond voice. Emily Dickinson's poems do this for me. Her music is so much her own, so idiosyncratic, so intricately meshed into her unique sensibilities and intellect that I can't do anything but listen in awe as she enacts her spectacular gift. Surely there's an influence, but to use one of her favorite words, it is on my soul, not on any portion of my creating mind. This leads to another interesting issue. What about poetry and translation? In my own poetic biography, many of the poets I responded to most powerfully when I was starting out were poets from other languages. Baudelaire, then Rilke, then even Rilke in Maltelurid's Briga meditating on Baudelaire. Then many of the Latin American Spanish poets, the Japanese and Chinese, the Poles, the Russians, everything from every language I could find. I began to write at a time of stultifying cultural conformity in the United States, and with notable exceptions of an intimidating conservative formalism in poetry. The poets who arrived from other languages were crucially important in inculcating in me the conviction that I could find a place for myself, my life as I actually lived it, in the world of poetry, beyond most of what was then being written in English, and some still do. There's a probably thorny question here of how poets can be influenced so powerfully by translated poetry when the music of poetry, its most potent element, is so deeply, deeply and intricately rooted in the chromatic movements of its particular language. A host of issues arise, but since I'm almost out of time, I'll hope that this may come up in our sessions on translation and just mention a term that occurs to me in thinking about poets and their vision, what I'd call instead of influence, imaginative transmission. I'll end with a little experiment about poetry and prose. 
several years ago, I wrote a poem in which I realized as I was finishing a draft of this talk, I'd already said pretty much everything about influence I have today. <laughs> so here's the experiment. I'll read the poem and ask you to ask yourselves which, my little discourse in prose or the poem, will have had more of an effect on you. Which will move more firmly into what I've been calling the voice of your mind and thus into your imagination. And which might be better become useful in your subsequent considerations of the issues I've presented. And here's the poem, the foundation. Watch me, I'm running. Watch me, I'm dancing, I'm air. The building I used to live in has been raised and I'm skipping, hopping, two-footedly leaping across the blocks, bricks, slabs of concrete, plaster, and other unnameable junk. Or nameable, really, if you look at the wreckage closely. Here, for instance, this shattered I-beam is the Bible and this chunk of mortar, Plato. The mortar of mind, also in pieces, in pieces in me anyway, in my mind. Aristotle and Nietzsche, Freud and Camus and Berber, Buber, and Christ even, that year of reading Paradise Lost when I thought, hell, why not? But that fracture too. Kierkegaard, Hegel and Kant and Goffman and Marx, all heaped in the foundation I've sped through so often that now I have it by heart, can run, dance, be air, not think of the spew of intellectual dust I scuffed up when in my barely broken in boots I first clumped through the sanctums of Buddhism, Taoism, Zen, and the Areopagite even, whose entire text I typed out, my God, why? I didn't care. I just kept bumping my head on the lintels. Einstein, the Gnostics, Kabbalah, Saint this and Saint that. Watch me again now because I'm not alone in my dancing, my being air. And with my poets, my Rilke, my Yates, we're leaping together through the debris, a jumble of rack, but my Keats floats across it, my Herbert and Dunham, my Kennell, my Bishop and Blake are soaring across it, my Frost, Baudelaire, my Dickinson, Lowell and Larkin, and my Giants, my Whitman, my Shakespeare, my Dante and Homer, they were the steel, those scouring as I was, the savants and sages half the time, I hardly knew it. But Vallejo was there all along, and my Sidney and Shelley, my Coleridge and Hopkins, there all along with their music, which is why I can whirl through the rubble of everything else, the philosophizing and theories, the thesis and anti and sin, all I believe must be what meanings were made of, when really it was the singing, the choiring, the cadence, the lull of the vowels, the chromatical consonant clatter. Watch me again. I haven't landed. I'm hovering here over the fragments, the remnants, the splinters and shards. My poets are with me, my soarers, my skimmers, my skaters. <clears throat> Aloft on their song in the ruins, their jubilant song of the ruins.